We're going to be in Numbers chapter 21 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it. If not, it'll be up here on the screen. And uh, one of the more unusual passages in God's Word, I think, but here by the Spirit of God for us, and so I pray that He will make it clear to all of us. There are printed outlines in your bulletin, and there are printed messages at both exits. You can uh, pick one of those up now or later if you like. And um, I'm going to read the first nine verses here. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, that's the southern part of the promised land there, the desert part, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you'll indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and thus the name of the place was called Hormah, which means devoted to destruction. If you'll recall, it was in Hormah that Israel had, against the will of the Lord, tried to go up 40 years before, after they Uh, had doubted the spies, and they were defeated at Hormah, so now they gain a victory. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food, referring to the manna. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and against and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded, For the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Marla and I like to hike, as you know, and we've hiked thousands of miles, some of it in really rugged terrain where there are rattlesnakes. So far, by God's grace, we've never been bitten by a snake. Uh, We've had a few scares where you don't see the snake and suddenly you hear that ominous rattle and your adrenaline causes you to jump uh, away from the sound. Uh, So far, thankfully, those snakes didn't strike us. But from a spiritual point of view, every one of us has suffered a severe snake bite. 
Every one of us has been bitten by that serpent of old who deceived Eve in the garden and infected the entire human race with the poison of sin. God had warned Adam in Genesis 2.17, saying, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And not just Adam and Eve, but the entire human race was plunged into sin when they made that fatal move of eating from that forbidden tree. Paul explains in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And as you know, that death penalty involved not just physical death, but even worse, spiritual death, which means separation from God forever if we die in that condition of alienation from Him. I don't know if you do this, but often when I'm in public, I look around at people and I grieve over the obvious effects of the toll of sin on the human race. Sometimes you see it in people's physical infirmities. They are afflicted with some disease or some problem that you can tell is serious. Sometimes you see it in sensuality where people, mostly women, but sometimes men, are are trying to attract others in the vain attempt to deaden their soul pain through physical pleasure. Sometimes you see it in anger. People in public yelling at their kids or husbands and wives arguing angrily with each other. Uh, Often, even here in Flagstaff, you see it in drunkenness. People are staggering along, oblivious to reality, ruining their lives, living unproductive lives through sin. Whatever form it takes, though, we've all been bitten by this evil serpent through Eve and Adam. So the question is, well, what's the remedy? And our text shows us that although the wages of sin is death, All who look in faith to God's remedy will be instantly healed. The situation here is, in Numbers chapter 20, the chapter before, Israel was camped at Kadesh, right on the southern end of the promised land. They had been in the wilderness now almost 40 years because of their unbelief. Uh, The previous generation did not trust in God's promise to give them the land when the spies came back with the report. And so now they're in Kadesh, again, down there at the south, and Moses sends to the king of Edom, which is over on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea, and he asks permission for Israel to cross through 
that land. He promises the king, we won't eat any of your food. We won't even drink any of your water. Just give us permission to go through. That king comes back with a hostile threat that if you set foot on our land, we will take military action against you. And so they can't go that way. And then after the death of Aaron, which is reported at the end of chapter 20, the Canaanite king of Arad, um, he lived just north of where Israel was camped, he comes out against Israel. Uh, at this point, for a change, Israel does the right thing. They haven't had a very good track record yet, but this time they seek the Lord. And they tell the Lord that if he will give them the victory, they will utterly destroy the cities uh, belonging to that king. And God granted them a victory in that battle, which was the first that they had experienced in the promised land. Then, rather though than go on and march north into the land, the Lord directed Moses to turn around have them go back down through the wilderness toward the, the Red Sea, where modern day it's called the Gulf of Aqaba, and then take a circuitous route around the east to avoid going through the land of the king of Edom. At this point, the people become impatient with the journey. They grumbled against the Lord and Moses. They accused Moses again of bringing them out of Egypt just to kill them out in the wilderness and they complained about what they called this miserable food, referring to the manna uh, that God had graciously supplied, as well as complaining about the lack of water. So the Lord sent these fiery serpents to plague them, killed many of them. I believe uh, fiery probably refers to the way the bite felt. It burned uh, when they got bit and killed them. And again, for a change, the people that survived that repented. And they confessed their sin to Moses. They asked him to intercede for them. He prays, and God gives this really unusual remedy to make a bronze snake, put it up on a standard or a pole where everyone can see it, and whoever looks to this bronze snake uh, would be healed and live. And if you've ever wondered when you've gotten stationary from a doctor or gone to a doctor's office why they've got a pole with a snake, it's from this story. Um, four lessons that I'd like to bring out from the story this morning. The first one is that the Lord is the holy judge and he can justly impose death on sinners. When God approves Israel's prayer request that they, if he granted them victory, would utterly destroy these cities, it raises a problem that will become more prominent in the book of Joshua, one that many critics of the Bible pounce upon, and that is the problem. Well, how can a good and loving God uh, impose death not just on the warriors, but on the entire cities of the Canaanites. How can God uh, pronounce this horrible fate on all of these Canaanites to kill them all? And 
You have prominent atheists like Richard Dawkins who jump on this and accuse God of what he says is divine genocide. And the implication, of course, God is evil. He would not do this if he were good and loving. And so, how do we deal with that problem? Well, first of all, we need to recognize something very obvious. And that is that God has justly imposed the death penalty, not just on the Canaanites, but on the entire human race. Uh, God is the righteous judge. He knows the thoughts and intentions of every person's heart, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done. And he pronounces in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins will die. That's God's prerogative as the judge to say that is the penalty on sin. And as I've shared with you many times, the um, playwright George Bernard Shaw wryly observed the obvious. The statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one, people die. Uh, look around. Nobody's getting off this planet unless Jesus returns without facing death. A second thing we need to understand is God's amazing patience and His mercy toward these wicked Canaanites. Hundreds of years before this incident, back in Genesis chapter 15, God explained to Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, and then He would bring them out and give them the land of Canaan. So God allows His people to be enslaved down in Egypt for four centuries, and then He finally brings them up. And you say, well, why would He do that? And then God explains why He does it in Genesis 15-16. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorite, and that word means Canaanite, is not yet complete. And so God let these wicked people go on in their sins generation after generation for 400 years and didn't judge them. And from history, we know that they practiced rampant idolatry, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, uh, and bestiality. And elsewhere in the Bible, God condemns all of those sins and warns that those who practice such things will face His impending judgment if they don't repent. And while you look around and you say, well, that pretty well fits our culture, except for maybe, well, no, child sacrifice even fits our culture, doesn't it? Abortion on demand. So we, we fit. And you say, well, why doesn't God wipe us out? Well, He may. That's His prerogative. And we don't know how God determines, all right, that, that people has filled up the measure of their sins. Now it's time. And He wipes them out. But He did that with the Canaanites. So Israel's going in there to wipe out the Canaanites wasn't genocide. It was capital punishment decreed by a holy and just God who says, now is time for that people to face judgment. Now, if you protest and say, well, yeah, but the Canaanites didn't really know any better. Uh, they didn't know any better. 
Well, the biblical answer there is that the law of God is written on every human heart. Romans chapter 2 makes that point. All people have within them a conscience, a sense of right and wrong, and all people have violated that conscience. All people also can look at creation and they have a powerful witness that God is. I mean, how can you look at a human body and say that's just an accident that happened over billions of years? That is statistically impossible. Could not have happened. But Paul says in Romans 1 that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness and they deny God the Creator. He says their foolish heart was darkened and so eventually God gives them over to their sin. We studied that when we were in the book of Romans. Also, historically, the Canaanites were not all that far removed from the global flood. Uh, They surely had flood uh, stories in their oral culture passed down. It hadn't been that long. And their, their ancestors would have said, you know, we came off the ark. With, we're descendants of Noah and his sons. And uh, God destroyed the whole world through the flood. And yet the Canaanites persisted in their rebellion against him. Now there's one other objection that people will raise when you talk about this. And that is, well, why can't God just forgive sins? I mean, you know, somebody wrongs me, I forgive them. No big deal. Shrug it off and move on. Why can't God do that? And the answer is because God is not like you. (laughs) The, The Bible is very clear. God is absolutely holy and He is absolutely just, which means that all sin must be punished. And if He were not holy and He were not just, He would not be God. He would be some sort of an unholy demon or something. But to be God, He must be holy. He must be just. Um, you understand the concept. <clears throat> Say that a an evil man, for no reason at all except to steal her purse, killed your mother to support his drug habit. And he goes in before the judge, and the judge says, you know, you really shouldn't ought to do that. Uh, we're, we're just going to let you go on probation, and next time try to do better you would be outraged for the reason that is not just. If that man took my mother's life, he should pay a penalty for that crime that is commensurate with the crime. And to sin against an infinitely holy God is an infinitely heinous crime. Jonathan Edwards argues that in his uh, frightening sermon. The justice of God in the damnation of sinners. Read it sometime with your seatbelt fastened. Uh, It's quite a powerful read. But the Bible warns us in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. And in Hebrews 9.27 it says, It is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. There's no reincarnation. You live, you die You face judgment. Now the good news is, of course, God has not left us to die in our sins. He sent His eternal Son 
to bear the punishment that we deserve. And therefore, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because Jesus met the penalty, so God can be just in saying the penalty has been paid, but only for those who have faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus explained all this to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who came to see him by night in John chapter 3, one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, but maybe you don't know the two verses that come right before uh, the, the familiar verse. John three fourteen through 16, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And then the familiar John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now I admit, when you read the story of Israel in the wilderness, the verses I read this morning, it's really easy to think, what in the world is wrong with these people? I I mean, how could they be so prone to grumbling? God has met their need over and over and over and over again in spite of their sin, And now here they are grumbling again. But we need to apply that to ourselves because, and this is the second lesson here, in spite of many manifestations of God's grace, we've all grumbled against the Lord and thus we all deserve His judgment. Now, in the start of the chapter, God gives Israel their first taste of victory. They defeat this king of Arad at Hormah. And maybe they thought, hey, we're all set. Let's keep marching north. We're going to go into the land and take the land. We'll be in there soon. But God directed Moses, make a U-turn, go back into the wilderness, go south, then go east, go around the land of Eden, Edom, And that's the way that we're going to get into the land. And that detour caused Israel, it says in verse 4, to become impatient because of the journey and then to speak out against God and against Moses. Has God ever brought a detour into your life that made you grumble? You thought, hey, victory is right there. You know, I'm, I'm ready to roll. Here we go. Whoops. U-turn. Go around that way. It's not the way you'd planned. So these people were like us, and they grumble again. And then in verse 5, they say, Why have you, Moses, brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That's a complete denial, of course, of God's goodness, God's plan. God's promise. And then they add, there is no food and no water. The first was an exaggeration and second too. And then they added, we loathe this miserable food. And that word miserable is the only time that noun occurs in the Old Testament. But they're really despising the gift of God. Every morning all they had to do is go out and collect the manna. And it was nutritionally all they needed to live. 
It was God's gracious gift here in the desert. And they're saying, this stuff stinks. You know, we've had it with this manna. You know, Jesus, in John 6, said that the manna pointed to Him. Just as Moses gave you that manna in the wilderness, so the Father has given you me, and I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so to despise the manna was really to despise God's Savior. And that's a really serious thing. But again, before we condemn Israel, we need to admit, you know, I've been there, done that. We get impatient with trials that God brings into our lives to shape us into the image of Christ. We get tired of waiting on God to fulfill His promises. Lord, how long, you know, fed up with waiting on Him. We complain about our circumstances even though God abundantly provides for our needs. Uh, Like Israel, we exaggerate our trials and we minimize our blessings. Uh, No food. Well, that's not true. No water. That's not true. They would have been dead if there was no water. Just didn't have enough water. And then they, you know, max, they maximize their, their trials and then they minimize their blessings. But we never have grounds to accuse God of being cruel. You brought us into this to kill us. We need, never have grounds to complain about God's treatment of us. And in this case, as we know in verse 6, the Lord sent these fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And then those who had not died in verse 7 repent. They come to Moses and say, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and and against you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses, again as he's done many times, interceded for this rebellious people. And you know, that's the right thing to do when you recognize that you've sinned. Confess your sin to the Lord. Lord, I shouldn't be grumbling. Lord, you've blessed me in so many ways. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, John says, I'm writing these things that you may not sin, but then he adds, if anyone sins, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now in this case, God provides this really unusual remedy in verse 8. The Lord says to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard. It shall come about that everyone who's bitten when he looks at it will live. And this teaches us the third lesson in our text. And that is that God has graciously supplied the remedy for our death penalty. It's interesting. God didn't remove the snakes. But he gave them a remedy. For their snake bites. Now. As you study the Old Testament. There are many many types there. And I admit it's a very difficult business sometimes to say. Is that a true type of Jesus Christ or not? Some scholars get carried away with types. And they see a type everywhere. Uh, others minimize the types and hardly see one anywhere. In this case, we don't need to wonder because Jesus, as I said in John 3, applies this to himself. 
And if he had not done so, I never would have dared to say Jesus is like a snake. I mean, that sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? But Jesus said, I'm that snake on the pole. Seven things about God's remedy. First of all, it was supernatural, but at the same time, it was strange. Uh, It's a bizarre remedy because in the Ten Commandments, God had specifically said, don't make any graven images. Uh, Aaron had violated that with the golden calf. But now God says to Moses, make a graven image. Make a bronze snake. Set it up on a pole. Whoever looks at it will live. Also, um, Israel knew the story of Eve in the garden, and snakes didn't have a very good impression on them. I don't know of any society in the world that just says, oh, we all love snakes. You know, we all want to get away from snakes. They're dangerous and, and so on. But they knew that. And I imagine there were some in Israel that went, you know, Moses is getting old. Maybe he's losing it here. Uh, you know, maybe the old man just kind of went over the edge, built a, a bronze snake and put it up on the standard. But it wasn't Moses' idea. It came directly from God, and uh, it was supernatural, and skeptics always doubt the supernatural because they don't believe God can do miracles. But here, instead of this deadly snake, God provides a substitute snake, but one without poison. There's no poison in this snake. And so he takes what is deadly and he turns it into his supernatural remedy, a source of life for all who would trust it. Uh, that reminds me directly of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And like this snake on a pole, the cross is God's remedy. No man thought that one up. And it's a supernatural remedy. Because God, through faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, imparts life to those who are dead. Only God can do that. No human can impart life to a corpse. But spiritually, we're dead in our sins. And when we believe in Jesus, God imparts life to that person and they live. They are raised from the dead spiritually. And that just sounds foolish to the world. Huh? You believe in a a dead Savior hanging on a cross? Yes, but He is risen, thankfully. But it's God's supernatural strange remedy for our sin. Second thing to note about this snake is God's remedy was singular. And by that I mean it's the only remedy. There wasn't a whole shelf full. Take your pick. Any medicine will work. There was only one. And that was to look to this snake. And you know, apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no cure for human sin. Oh, there have been many invented. Hey, do this. Try this. You know, this will give you a happy life. This will make you right with God. No, no, no. The only remedy God offers is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A third thing about this remedy, it was sufficient. 
Moses didn't say, well, you know, look at the snake, but it's not quite enough. I've got some special oil, and it's on sale today, today only. If you buy this oil and rub it on, you know, then in addition to that, that will get you over the hump. That'll save you. Or he didn't say, well, you know, look at the snake, but then you've got to bring your own offerings, too, and offer them up. No, there isn't anything. He just says, look at the snake. Everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, he'll live. And you know, in the same way, the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save sinners. The worst of sinners, as Paul put it. And you can't add anything to it. You can't say, well, I'll do penance. Nope, get rid of your penance. You don't need penance. Uh, Well, I'll join the church and I'll give money to the church. Forget it. That won't get you in. That's of no use. Well, what about my good works? No, trash them. They're all rubbish, as Paul said. They're all worthless. You see, you don't need to add anything because as we sing in that wonderful song, Jesus paid it all. Everything. Paid it all. Now, if that doesn't bring a smile to your face, nothing will. Amen. Jesus paid for all my sins when he died on the cross. And there's no more payment needed. And there's nothing for you to do except look to Jesus on the cross. And he, God will save you. The fourth thing about this remedy, it was sweeping. By that, I mean in verse 8, he says, Everyone, everyone who is bitten when he looks to it will live. There, there are no cases too hard. There are no exceptions. And as John 3.16 promises, whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Uh, whoever's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Yeah, but you don't know my sin. God does. And he says, whoever. <clears throat> and Paul echoes that in Romans 10.13 when he says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you. That means anybody. That means the, the worst person out in society. It means ISIS terrorists. It means anybody who will truly repent and look to Jesus in faith. God will save them. The fifth thing, God's remedy is sure. Verse 8 again, when he looks at it, God says, he will live. Not, well, we'll see. You know, we'll wage case by its own. This remedy never failed. It cured every person who believed God enough to look. And God's promise to you is, if you will look to Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins in faith, you will be saved. God will save you. You will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus gave this wonderful promise in John 6, 37. He said, the one who comes to me, and then he gets emphatic, I will certainly not cast out. He didn't just say, well, I'll think about it. He said, I will certainly not cast that person out. And you can count on God and His Word as the truth. The sixth thing about this remedy is it was simple. I said it was sufficient, and its sufficiency makes it really simple. 
You didn't have to crawl on your hands and knees over broken glass as some poor people think they have to do to get saved. You didn't have to learn a difficult mantra, you know, and get it just perfect. And if you say it just right enough times, you know, that'll work the magic. No. You didn't have to take classes where you learn seven steps to defeat snakes. You know, we're going to get these right and we'll go out there and, man, we're going to kill that baby. No, that wasn't how you did it. You didn't have to buy a replica of the snake and set it up in your bedroom and every night bow before it and pray and hope that enough prayers would eventually kind of get you over the hump and when you died, you'd be right with God. No, it's really simple. Look at the snake. And you had to believe, to look. Believe God's Word. He says, look, and you'll live. I believe God. I looked. And I lived. That's it. And that's all you have to do with Jesus. God says, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Pretty simple. And because it's simple, a lot of people don't like it. They want something complicated where they can take some credit. And that leads to the last thing. God's remedy was self-effacing. I mean, what credit could you take for looking at a snake on a pole? You know, I was smarter than you. (laughs) No, you were dumber. You know, who would think looking at a snake on a pole is going to save anybody? Who would think that believing in a crucified Savior is going to save anybody? You couldn't boast about it. You couldn't boast, well, I fasted and prayed for 14 days before I looked at the snake. No, you would have died if you'd done that. You had to look instantly, soon. You know, you had to realize, well, I didn't do a thing to cure myself. I was terminal. It was all I could do to look up. But I saw that, and I lived. And God promised, and I did it, and I live now. So, first lesson we saw is God is the holy judge. And he can impose the death penalty, and he has, on sinners. The second thing we've seen is that in spite of many manifestations of God's grace, we all qualify. We're sinners. We have sinned against this holy God. But thirdly, we've seen that God has graciously supplied the remedy for our death penalty, namely Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then, although I've said it, I'm going to say it again here. The last thing is that to be healed instantly from God's curse of eternal death, look in faith to the remedy that He has provided. Now, it's interesting God didn't remove the snakes, but He provided the cure. And the remedy was not automatically effective for the whole nation. If somebody said, I don't believe that stuff, That's a bunch of hooey. They died. Each person, individually, had to look to the snake. You couldn't say, well, my wife looked. That's good enough. Family plan. No. No family plan. Husband had to look. Wife had to look. Kids had to look. Every person had to look to the snake to be healed. But when they looked... They were healed instantly. There were no delays. They didn't need to say, well, I'm working on the good works. Let me get a few more in place and then I'll look. No, that would kill you. Just look now. 
at the snake. And you're healed. And in the same way, as we saw, Jesus told Nicodemus, the Pharisee, John 3, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Now, John was fond of double meanings in words. And lifted up obviously refers to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. But John, writing after the resurrection, knew that it had a higher meaning. That Jesus would be lifted up in glory and majesty. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says in in Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, referring to the demonic forces, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the great news, the best news in the world is that if right now you will look in faith to God's remedy, the Lord Jesus Christ, lifted up on the cross, resurrected from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father, returning again soon in power and glory, you will have eternal life as a free gift. Now you need to understand though, looking to Christ in faith is not faith in an idol of Christ. Not faith in looking at a crucifix or a statue or a picture of Jesus. It's faith in a living person who died, whom God raised from the dead, who is now living at the right hand of the Father. And in the wilderness here, the Israelites had to believe in God's promise that whoever looks to this serpent would be healed in the same way we need to believe in God's promise that whoever looks to Jesus and His death on their behalf as payment for His sins will be forgiven and have eternal life. But we have to be careful not to fall into idolatry where you make Jesus kind of a a good luck charm. Yep, I pray to that statue every night or something. The reason I say that is, 700 years after this incident, King Hezekiah, who was a godly king, had to destroy this bronze serpent. It was still around 700 years later, and Hezekiah realized people were praying to that serpent as if it was some kind of an idol. And they were fallen into idolatry, and so he ground it to bits and destroyed it. Pretty brave move on Hezekiah's part. But you know, there are people today who have the same kind of superstition. Oh yeah, yeah, I've got that crucifix set up there, and I, I've got this set up, and, and I, I go and I do all the ritual and pray to that, and it, that's what gives me a happy life. No. It is personal faith in the living Savior who died, who rose again, it is not faith in some kind of a good luck charm. So destroy all the idols and put your trust in the unseen Savior who is coming again soon. He promised whoever believes in Him will not perish, 
but will have eternal life. Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old. He had been under conviction for his sin for five years as a young man living in Victorian England. He later would go on to become the greatest preacher of the 19th century. But he was the son of a pastor. In fact, his grandfather was a pastor. And they had all of these Puritan books. And from age 10 to 15, Spurgeon had been reading these Puritan books. I won't ask how many 15-year-olds today read the Puritans. But I'm guessing it's not really a majority. But in spite of that, in spite of hearing his father's and his grandfather's sermons, Spurgeon thought that he had to do something to get saved. He just didn't get it. And so he was burdened with the guilt of his sin. And there was a snowy day in London, or it wasn't London, it was up in the suburbs there. But anyway, a snowy day. And he couldn't get to his regular church, so he was walking down the street, and he saw a little Methodist chapel, and he ducked in there, and the preacher couldn't even get to the church that day because of the snow. And so a lay preacher got up, and he preached from Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22, which in the King James Version reads, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And... This lay preacher, he wasn't very educated or suave in his preaching, but he made the point, anybody can look. Doesn't take a whole lot of effort to look. You don't have to do much to look. Uh, You don't have to have any special status or education to look. Just look. And then finally, it was a small congregation, probably not more than this section right here, he finally looked directly at Spurgeon and he said, young man, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And he said, you have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon later said, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. He said, God saved him when he looked at Jesus. And you know what? That's my message to you today. No matter what your sin, what your background, if you look to Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, who was raised from the dead, you'll live. Let's pray. If you're here this